again, I think what's interesting about these periods is they're difficult for everyone, but I believe and hope that they really end up sort of advantaging publishers with genuine value propositions, you know, real audiences and uh, sort of legitimate reasons for existing. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. For those of you who don't know us, we take a weekly look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That clip you just heard is from my interview with Jack Marshall, who is co-founder of Toolkits, a business information and consulting company focused on subscription publishing. So we talked about his past life as a media reporter at Digiday in the Wall Street Journal, what opportunity he and co-founder Shreem Pathak spotted in the market, and what advice he would give to publishers with subscriptions in today's market. Very nice. But before we kick off, we're going to give a shout out to MediaGazer, who are running a promo for our newsletter all of this month. MediaGazer is like the homepage of breaking news and trends and commentary for publisher and media owners. And it's definitely a site that I know, well, in fact, all three of us check up on a daily basis. Sorry for leaving you out of the last one, Peter. Before we put our newsletter together to make sure that we are totally up to date. It's a fantastic resource, uh, whether you're sort of seeking to keep abreast of what's going on or even just scrambling for a final item for our newsletter. <laughs> I was going to say, even <laughs> if you're desperate for a full story. <laughs> so you can go to mediagazer.com or you can follow them on Twitter at mediagazer. But first for the main story, this is a bit... Um, <laughs> Yeah, this feels a bit self uh, self congratulatory this week, but we're actually going to discuss one of my stories this week. Yeah. Well, it's only self congratulatory if we see it's a good story. Well, Ouch. had it not actually seen some like really, really wide pickup, then I can, I then we could have possibly said that. But actually, a lot of people were interested in this because of what it actually says about the wider podcasting landscape. Yeah, no one else, well, <laughs> no one else could have written a story, and nobody else has probably listened to a hundred yeah, exactly. podcasts over yeah, the course so of the year. Uh, um, basically, I listen. I spent Christmas and New Year and quite a lot of January basically listening to the long listing for the Publisher Podcast Awards um, before sending all the packs to the judges. So that was, I, I didn't keep a final tally, but it was over 150 podcasts, most of them, most of the way through, <laughs> partly because mm-hmm. they're so interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I kept, I sort of kept having people asking me saying, I know, what did you learn from that? You know, who's, who's good? Who's doing really good things and so i thought well, you know, i'm just gonna write an article about it um let me just the, the first it. point that you've made in our notes here about kind of the flawless audio that for a while felt like it was table stakes i remember even when we started the award three years ago going oh actually you know what everyone has flawless audio now but the gulf even between setups like ours because we all record separately using decent mics and the setups from some of the kind of the, the magazines that are producing podcasts are just insane i'm so jealous of them i mean i think the, the change over the last couple of years is that like a flawless audio used to be a plus point. Yeah, you know, it used to be something that really set your podcast apart. You know, good audio is, is is non-negotiable, but flawless audio is very much okay. Yeah, you know, these people have really got something special. Now, literally everybody had it, and if your audio wasn't flawless, it stood out, which is good so in some ways. Like it shows, remember, yeah. it shows how far the quality's come. But that, I mean, the pressure that that then puts on on podcasters is yeah, quite tough. So is it now just that we are transitioning more towards studio-based podcasts and therefore expect that flawless audio? No, I, well, I think they've got, the, the point is, you've made the point, is there's got to be a reason. Mm. You know, DC Thompson does that walk. Walk to well-being. I was about walk, to bring that one up. Yeah. Oh, that's the one, yeah. yeah. 
um, which is the same sort of idea. And there's a reason why the audio is not perfect on that because someone's outside and they're, they're recording the audio. So if you've got a reason, fine. Now I know there's issues there, but we record remotely and our audio is pretty good. Um, See, now you've just opened up to people listening for every single little audio. I've had, yeah. right I, now, I had some guests where I can hear their headphones clicking or I can tell that they're somewhere really awful. <laughs> and but, I'm just like, there's nothing you can do you, about right? it. Yeah, yeah, it does but bother it really me. really bothers you. You know, there's loads of things that irritate you about audio because it's so it's in your head, isesn't it? Can I just say that sometimes when we do have an interview, I'll just subtly lower their audio quality just so people think better of us. <laughs> so I'll add hisses, I'll add clicks, just so people go, wow, these media voices, guys, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, they hear first, people. We're all talking, well, talking about yeah. audio quality, all of us talking over each other, go on, Esther. That's why you edit, right? Yep. No, why, are we having this? why are we saying that? We're just setting ourselves up for a <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, I think there's another layer to this, which is that uh, one of the things I really noticed about these is that there's a lot more publishers now looking and saying, right, you know, we've got we've got the people talking, we've got our intro music, we've got our outro music. What else can we do to really enhance the sound? Um, mm. So there, there are a number that sort of quite unexpectedly were using sound effects, background music, and it just made the whole experience a lot more immersive. And I think, again, that it sort of really started to set some of these podcasts apart. You know, who is using, um, I think, uh, Cocktail Lovers had sort of, you know, uh, drinks pouring, ice clicking when, when they're talking about um, making their cocktails. And that just, it just adds a little extra something. It just adds a little extra professional touch. You were speaking to The Atlantic about this because they won, uh, about the podcast that they won back in um, 2021. Um, floodlines. Floodlines, floodlines. Um, and they were saying that what the, the process they've gone through to like choose the background music, but not to go overboard with it and to make sure it was subtle and enhancing, but not sort of overwhelmingly... Some of the music for that was done with, by professional musicians that they brought in specifically to do that. And it took them a year to make that. And it, it's, yeah, it's not a full-on <laughs> feature-length presentation. So, but you're right, and that's that's what people are up against, is that they're setting those kind of standards. And if you're looking at your podcast and then looking at them, you're thinking, jeez... Okay, um, in, in a bit more accessible way, um, if anybody wants some more inspiration on this, Engineering Matters is actually great for this because they do a weekly podcast. And um, yeah, just the sound effects of these are ever so subtle, but really quite funny. I was listening to one about sheep on solar farms. <laughs> and just these sheep would just come on in the background all the time. And it, it was really great. It just really helped sort of lift it. Um, and I mean, they're, they're, they're brilliant. I'm sure they'll more than happily talk about how they do that as part of a weekly production. Um, I think the editing side of things is more important than it ever used to be. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think people used to just talk for however long and then they put that out. And I don't think anyone does that anymore. Very, very few people do that anymore. Yeah. I, I would struggle to think of anybody that was just a kind of just like a straight bit of reportage yeah. down the mic, unless it's one of those very specialized, oh, we're actually going to read out this, um, this article, which has its place. Obviously there's a kind of collision between general audio and podcasting here. But you're right, the editing, and I think Esther, you'll back me up on this, has become the point of differentiation between a lot of podcasts within the same sector. Yeah, um, it sort of fits into one of the other points I made, which is that, and I, 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 do you guys get asked this question a lot, like, what's the right length for a podcast? Yeah. And Peter, I know you say this a lot, that it's it's actually not about how long it is, it's about how interesting it is, and the edit is a big, big part of that. You know, if, if you are sitting there and 
you're listening and you find your concentration dropping, that's the point you should be thinking, yeah. right, you know, what, what can we pull well, out? What was the, these, what's the one you spec? mentioned in the article? What's the one you mentioned? Uh, Benjamin um, Zephaniah for the author in the classroom. You said you wished it was three times longer than it actually was. Yeah, I could listen to him forever. And again, there's one about um, history. Actually, there's one about uh, food, like sort of food history condensed into an hour. <laughs> And they just sort of did this massive run through everything from like the types of flour, the tube is used to like the first recipe books to when veganism starts to be a thing. And, and I was like, like you're skipping over all this stuff. And I wrote like, like <laughs> you could almost do an episode on each of these single points. And that could have been, that could have been three or four hours easy. And I listened to the whole thing. It's really interesting. Well, there's longer ones than that, isn't there? Yeah, I'm just I- looking at um, one of the ones I listened to. The, the last one was three hours, 16 minutes. One before that was three hours, 46 wow. minutes. One before that was four hours, 10 minutes. And the one, oh, this one, Jesus Christ, is four hours, 51 minutes. <laughs> but how do you listen to that? Do you listen to that all in one go? No, God, no. No, absolutely not. That's like a sort of like, I'll, I'll listen to that over the course of a week, you know, from walking right. to the shops or whatever, or sometimes I'll stick it on in the background while I'm doing something else. Yeah, I think the thing with like History Extra, they, they, I think they publish six times a week now, their podcast. I'm trying to know how many million listeners they said they had at last time we spoke to them. I think there's a million... It's a million an episode, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's pretty good. That's but pretty the, good. You know, the That's episode approaching media voices level. <laughs> so there's... Uh, in media, DC Thompson, the New Statesman, uh, Telegraph, have all properly, properly, properly invested in their podcast and audio teams. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, people talk about, oh, I, w- I want to do a podcast like The Daily that the New York Times does. Well, there's 17 people on that, the last I heard. You can't expect to make what they make with, you know, yourself and an admin assistant. Hey, well, you I just mean- said admin assistant. So, Esther, <laughs> what about ads? How many ads is oh. acceptable for this? Really, I only started to notice this year. Um, but publishers have always, you know, pod- podcasts have always had adverts in. There's... You know, Acast, I think, particularly have been really pioneering in putting dynamic insertion ones in. Um, but th- there were definitely like more than five or six this year that had really started to pack those ads in. There, there are actually two podcasts I listened to that had two minutes worth of ads before starting the actual show. I've got to listen to two minutes worth of ads before getting to the show. And I've got a five minute journey to drop my kid off at nursery and forget it. I think one of the things that people always said about um, host red ads was that they were more, more personable. They actually felt more genuine. And just these last couple of years, I've found that just because there has been more investment in advertising and podcasts, you know, different sectors are investing in it now, that a lot of the times the hosts don't have that direct relationship anymore with the brands that they choose to advertise for. And so the host reads feel almost exactly like, you know, in dynamic insertion, they feel a little bit uh, soulless and a little bit inauthentic. The host read ads had actually almost completely dropped off. There were very few examples I found. It seems to have mostly Mm -hmm. switched to the, the dynamic insertion now, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, this episode of Media Voice is brought to you by Wabi Parker. For all your glasses needs, it's important to find the frames that fit your face. No, if, if anyone's listening, anyone listening to us is like, no, I need a good podcast to, to listen to. The short list is nuts. What's yeah. the 120 on the short list? No, there's not one of them that you wouldn't listen to. I just love the idea of somebody listening to this right now and going, ah, I need something good to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've had enough of your belcher. I'm going to go and listen to a good podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on, I suppose we should do news in brief now. Um, so news in brief now, a quick update on my Twitter stock. Um, the <laughs> TLDR, we're not going to the pub. <laughs> 
Um, it's down about $10 this year by about 20%, I think. Uh, following some more musk madness, uh, he's mm. now saying you can make the site profitable sobs. You can't. We know that. He'll let the man baby back on. And actually, he. Well, he don't want to go back on. Deal. <laughs> does he not? I didn't see No, that. no. Trump, Trump, Trump said it doesn't matter what Elon Musk does. He's not coming back. Uh, I, don't give, I don't trust anything that he says. No, it's true. Anyway, the deal's on hold. Uh, Mr. Musk tweeted that the deal was on hold well, because he was thinking about how many bots there are on now. Uh, okay, so a couple well. of things on that one. You can't put a deal like this on hold. That's just not a thing that you can do. Um, what he's actually probably trying to do is either seek an escape clause from this, which will cost him a billion, but it's significantly less than the $44 billion he would have to pay, or he's trying to drive the price of the shares down. Well, he's not trying to drive the price of the shares down. <laughs> he's 100% driven them down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, his solution for counting the number of bots on Twitter is to go through Twitter's followers, count every hundredth one, and decide whether it was a bot or not. I, I still don't understand how, how, how this could be influenced by some, somebody deciding to tweet at like five in the morning. But then, you know, I've lived no, through four years of Trump. Sense. I suppose that's exactly how the world ended up going. Okay, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a more bad news. Um, uh, yeah, this one. So Meta, also known as Facebook, formerly known as Facebook, uh, is thinking about reducing the money it gives news organizations less than a week after posting its slowest revenue growth since going public in 2012. Um, this has come from the information, so we couldn't read all of it because it's um, a very expensive paywall. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they've reported that uh, the company is reevaluating the news partnerships it's struck over the past few years, basically because it needs to cut costs and fewer people are clicking on news articles since Trump's outrage engine pulled out of town. Not surprising. I think I'm surprised. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised they're, they're pulling the plug this soon. I expected sort of maybe a year's time, but not surprised that that, that well has dried up. Interesting though that Google this week announced that it was going to be spending billions more. Mm-hmm. Or millions more, maybe not. Maybe, it'll still dry up. More. It'll dry up eventually. Uh, my news this week, uh, I appreciated a little update on NewsGuard, which is that browser extension. It seeks to tell users when they're on a site that promotes disinformation. Um, the results are a little bit underwhelming. It slightly deters people from actually reading and sharing. But the important thing for me is that this this effort hasn't fallen by the wayside. You know, we had the um, News Quality Score Index, which is now called something else. Um, so there are efforts out there to make sure that people are aware of what they're reading is either bad news or good news. And obviously we've got to be a little bit aware of who watches the Watchmen here, but any tool to add some qualitative scoring to the undifferentiated digital news landscape has got to be welcome. Also, in both Private Eye this week and on Pop Bitch, some absolutely dire news from within Murdoch's new talk TV. So I can't recommend you checking out the channel because it is dire, but I can recommend checking out either Private Eye or Pop Bitch for uh, the news about Talk TV. The lesson here is that you can't just spin up a media brand and hope that it'll do well. The buck passing all over the place. It's like, well, you, you uh, yeah. media brands take years to establish. You can't just spin something in four weeks well, and cry when it goes wrong. I love the fact that Piers Morgan's trying to blame Tom Newton Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like Alien versus Predator, isn't it? I was going to say, what side do you pick in that fight? Yeah, Freddy versus Jason. This week I spoke to Jack Marshall, who is the co-founder of Toolkits. I started by asking him how he built his subscriptions expertise through his reporting career. So, yeah, my background is on the editorial side. So I started out as a reporter covering uh, digital media and advertising back in 2008, I think it was, for, at the time, a publication called ClickZ. 
um, which I'm not sure if it's still around. But um, yeah, from there in, I guess it was like 2010, I was sort of one of the founding editorial team over at Digiday. Uh, so Brian Morrissey had just joined over there to sort of build out the editorial vision um, sort of on top of the events business, fledgling events business that was already operating over there. So I went over there and kind of helped get things off the ground sort of from a content perspective. And, um, you know, that was a hugely valuable four years for me professionally, I would say, just sort of learning how to build an editorial brand from the ground up and sort of understand how to create content and sort of serve the needs of uh, sort of highly targeted audience in what was already, to be honest at the time, a, a fairly crowded market. Um, so that was a great experience for me. And then in 2014, I joined the Wall Street Journal, um, again, to cover sort of digital media, um, publishing, publishing business models, ad tech, commerce, sort of their relationships with platforms. Uh, and then I guess maybe around 2016 or so is when uh, subscription models sort of started coming onto the scene. So yeah, by sort of 2018, I'd kind of been covering publisher businesses from the outside for a decade at that point. And honestly, sort of watching people make what seemed to me like slightly strange business decisions. So whether that was, <laughs> you know, getting hooked on hooked on traffic from single sources, you know, SEO games or kowtowing to Facebook or pivoting to video or raising inordinate amounts of money or whatever it was. So you know, I think in the back of my head, I always sort of assumed I'd end up closer to the sort of product uh, business side of media. And I think, you know, in many ways, sort of the rise of subscriptions around that time sort of gave me a natural natural way in. So the way I look at it is subscription models and products is sort of, it sounds cheesy, but I think much more closely aligned to uh, the content and sort of interests and needs of, of audiences. So for me, that seemed like a good opportunity to kind of add value by bringing an editorial sort of mindset and background to the table and sort of insert myself in the, in the conversation sort of around building uh, products and businesses with that approach in mind. So yeah, ultimately ended up back at Digiday in 2018, beginning of 2018 to sort of operate and grow their fledgling subscription program at the time. So it had launched before I got there, but it was very much sort of an MVP at that point. So imaginatively named Digiday Plus, of course. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, I think we were one of the first. I will I will put that out there. I think everybody else copied us. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, just kind of went over there to help figure out how to sort of put together a sustainable product and model and sort of build an infrastructure and team to support it and all that good stuff. Uh, and then we also launched subscription products across other digital media properties as well. So Glossy, which covers sort of fashion and beauty and modern retail, which covers sort of the evolution of retail. So yeah, that was sort of a, a long story, but um, that was about it until, yeah, I moved on uh, again to, to found toolkits in, in 2020 with, uh, with my co-founder, Shireen Pavak. I'll, I'll come on to that in a minute. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that you, you saw media companies make kind of really weird decisions when it came to um, the revenue models. I mean, you've worked both, at a, I suppose, did you do as a media startup and at the Wall Street Journal, which is pretty much the opposite end of the scale the opposite yep <laughs> why do you th why do you think media businesses end up making those weird decisions like is it a lack of information or is it just that the bigger ones just end up sort of not communicating in their departments yeah I think it's a few things I mean I think for sort of big legacy quote-unquote legacy media companies it's just that typical sort of big company lethargy to some degree so 
you know, you get past a certain stage and sort of the left arm doesn't necessarily know what the right arm is doing. Um, you know, it becomes very difficult. Again, it sounds cliche, but to sort of turn around a, a big ship or plane or whatever the <laughs> whatever the <laughs> metaphor is. Um, but then also, you know, at that time there was like, there was a lot of venture money sort of flowing in, sort of on the basis that publishers were bringing in huge audiences, you know, Facebook, you just turn on the spigot, generate huge audiences, go out and raise some money, and then you've got to spend it, right? You've got to spend it on mm. big expensive offices and uh, staff and, you know, people to push paper around and look like they're doing something. So I think a lot of businesses at that time uh, got really bloated, obviously. And, you know, I think we're still seeing the fallout of that today, to be honest, with some of those big names from sort of the middle of the last decade who are now, you know, struggling to raise whatever series f or whatever it is and looking for a looking for a soft landing yeah so what opportunity do you ensure in spot when you're launching toolkits like I, I suppose who's it what is it and who's it for yeah so i mean the genesis was really shireen and i left both left digiday in the summer of 2020 um so shireen was managing director of editorial products and as i said i was sort of operating the subscriptions business so uh, when we left Digiday, we were both doing sort of bits and pieces of consulting for publishers and media companies and, and brands and just sort of trying to figure out what was going to be next for us. So, yeah, at that time, I was sort of advising companies primarily around subscriptions uh, and membership products and models and all that stuff. And Shireen was finding a ton of demand from companies that really wanted to kind of push heavily into building out more legitimate sort of publishing operations of their own. So you know, sort of moving beyond the quote unquote content marketing stuff and trying to, you know, really use media as sort of a front door for their business. So what we kind of saw through that consulting work was a lot of the clients we were working with just faced very similar challenges, had very similar questions, uh, in many cases, very similar needs. So, you know, with our background on like the editorial and content side, I think we realized there was an opportunity to probably serve a lot of those needs via content first and foremost. And, you know, to sort of use our advisory and consulting work to inform that to some degree. Um, and then I think the other thing as well is, you know, we realized there was a need to sort of help clients and readers understand, I, I guess, the best sort of tools and services suited to their needs and where appropriate, make those make those connections. So, you know, I think that goes beyond the traditional advertising model to a degree. So, you know, we have a close partnership with Memberful, for example, which is sort of powering multi-million dollar subscription and membership businesses for some of our clients. Um, so, yeah, just sort of figure out how to make some of those connections. So long story short, you know, we decided to found toolkits sort of around that concept. So the goal is really to provide highly actionable and practical content um, for professionals in very targeted job functions. Um, so that means sort of intelligence, guidance, best practices, basically anything we can provide to help them do their jobs better. Um, so, I mean, our, our vision sort of medium long term is to sort of serve professionals across a range of different job functions. So we started, uh, as I may have alluded to, with sort of two core audiences, those working in and around subscription publishing and then what we call brand publishing. Um, but we're now starting to kind of branch out into other specific areas that we think are sort of underserved. So a few weeks ago, we launched a newsletter specifically about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the marketing and advertising industries. Uh, and we're sort of starting to look at other tangential, uh, I don't like the word niche necessarily, but other sort of tangent, tangential, very focused sort of professional job functions and areas to, to push into. I think the cool kids call them verticals these days. 
Verticals. Let's go with verticals. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and and I know this can be one of the hardest things in the world when when you've you studied so many media businesses you you know what people should do right and what people should do wrong how are you applying that to your own business like what what are your main areas in terms of sort of <laughs> making money from the business and and making it sustainable yeah I mean well that's sort of one of the benefits of sort of running a media company that covers media companies to some degree is you know we can use the lessons that we sort of learn from clients and apply them to our own business so um you know, I think we're still sort of figuring out exactly what that model is going to be for us, to be completely honest. But, um, you know, maybe maybe we'll touch on this later, but I think one sort of interesting uh, narrative from media over the past few years has been sort of the ads versus subscriptions thing. Mm. And, you know, for us, we're firmly sort of focused on both. Um, you know, we want to reach as larger audience as we can with our content. But then we think that, you know, a layer of paid content on top of that to sort of super serve a, a set of our audience is sort of the way to go. Um, so yeah, you know, we are approaching it uh, in terms of sort of generating as many different revenue streams as we can. And obviously consulting is still a piece of the pie as well. So uh, that's the goal for us. And, it, and that's something we advise clients, you know, diversification is key and there's no sense in putting all your eggs in one basket. That idea you touched on about ads and subscriptions, um, it feels like something that a lot of the industry commentators have sort of started talking about again. Do you think they can live in harmony in, in media businesses? Yeah, it, it's funny, this narrative that has emerged. This is something I've written about quite a lot recently. But I mean, it, it feels to me like it's been perpetuated by basically a vocal minority of companies who for sort of reasons that suit their own interests have kind of firmly set up camping in one ground or the other. Uh, whether that's because, you know, as a differentiator in the market, because it's good for PR, because it's more attractive to investors, or, you know, in some cases, because they don't really have much choice but to rely on one of those models just because of the nature of their product. So, you know, I think for the majority of publishers and as sort of their first pushes into subscriptions start to mature i think most people are realizing that the combination of the two is a really sort of nice and powerful model um you know you can grow your audience nicely monetize a big chunk of it with advertising and ultimately i think the goal for everybody is to sort of form strong direct relationships ideally paying relationships with a portion of their audience so i don't really see it as an either or i think if you can convert a portion of your audience to paid, then why wouldn't you do it? There's all sorts of advantages that come with that. Even if it's just, even if subscriptions isn't profitable sort of in and of itself, just having access to sort of a highly engaged user base, even to inform other areas of your business is hugely powerful. So I would urge people to think of it less sort of binary and more think about what's in the best interest of their overall business. And as I said, often I think publishers are arriving at the the conclusion that you know both is a nice mix yeah i, I don't know so it, people almost seem to get a bit puritanical about it and say oh you know we're not going to dirty ourselves with ads when the subscription thing was taking off i, I don't really know where that sort of came from so. it's bizarre i mean i do wonder i wonder how much substack had something to do with this as well because they took a very sort of firm ide ideological stance on how sort of the internet has played out um you know with sort of the power of big platforms and everything like that and, you know, sort of firmly put put a line in the ground. And then I wonder if other people sort of latched onto that, whether or not it was in the best interest of their own business, it was kind of a good story to tell. Um, but, you know, Substack's even an interesting one. There are huge creators on Substack now 
who are monetizing with ads primarily and Substack isn't getting a piece of that action, but it still seems committed to, uh, to the subscription model. So I don't know, long answer, but I, you know, I think it's just that narrative thing that media sort of plays into. It makes for good tweets, makes for good headlines. But again, for the majority of publishers in sort of the middle of the bell curve, I think, you know, a, a combination of the two is, is a nice spot to be in. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know what you make about the recent news about subscription businesses starting to struggle. I know a lot of people have sort of basically written off the subscriptions wave because Netflix had a bit of a bad quarter, which I don't think is particularly fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, you know, I think I, I think to some degree it was somewhat inevitable that we would see sort of a correction in the market, you know, sort of post-pandemic. I think people had a lot of, um, you know, expendable income. They had a lot of time to sort of consume content. And this was at, at the same time when everyone was launching, you know, Brand Plus or, or whatever their uh, streaming <laughs> service or subscription service was. But um, I mean, I think for me, fundamentally, it just comes down to sort of the, the content and the product. So, I mean, without giving my opinions on Netflix content, you know, I think some people would argue that the content hasn't been as strong over the past year as it has been in previous years. So as it relates to publishers, I mean, I think a lot of publishers sort of rush subscription products to market because they decided that they needed to be in on subscriptions. Um, you know, everyone else was doing it. They threw their hat in the ring but didn't really give a ton of consideration to whether it was the best model for their content or for, for their audience, frankly. So you ended up with people sort of trying to tax their most loyal audiences with metered models that they just kind of slapped on one day. Uh, you know, in some instances, publishers were trying to charge for content that if they're honest with themselves, probably wasn't worth paying for or wasn't going to be worth paying for on sort of an ongoing recurring basis. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk of, peak subscription and I think to some degree that's probably true especially with like you know the the economy the way it is and belt mm. tightening on the horizon but but I don't think that really speaks to the viability of subscription models at all I think more than anything publishers will just sort of need to be honest with themselves about whether they really have the content and products to support subscription models sort of sustainably in the long term um, and I think, you know, we're starting to see many adjusting their approaches now, realizing that maybe they could, kind of got that wrong the first time around. So, um, yeah, and I've written about this a lot recently as well, but I think we, we see a lot of people already doing it and I would expect it to continue, but move towards sort of freemium models where, you know, I think a lot of publishers should become comfortable with the fact that 80% of their content, 80% of their audience is not going to be monetizable through subscriptions, but the other 20% is. So how do you sort of carve out that portion of content, that portion of audience and sort of super serve them with subscriptions? And then, you know, the other 80% opens you up for advertising, commerce and whatever else you can uh, you can latch on. So it's seeing the subscription offering as for, like for your super fans rather than just your general audience. Yeah, I think super fans is one way to look at it. But then I think sort of segments of your audience as well. So even sort of the most targeted publisher, their audience isn't a monolith. You know, some will be professionals who are trying to solve a specific problem. Some will be sort of academics or some might be, you know, just casual drive-by users. So it's just figuring out what are the ways that you can serve different sort of segments of audience. And that may ultimately lead to publishers having multiple subscription products. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that at all. 
Um, in fact, Axios is kind of doing that or attempting to do that with, yeah. I think it's called Axios Pro. So yeah, just saying, look, you know, we'll slice this little por portion of content off for people who work in finance, this piece for people who work in media, and just kind of slice the pie a little bit thinner, um, which ultimately kind of benefits everyone because the product that you're buying is way more targeted. You know, there's less kind of wastage. You're not paying for content that you're not interested in. Um, but it still enables you to kind of grow your top of funnel audience and, and leave some content um, sort of out beyond the paywall and grow your brand and all that good stuff. Were you surprised at Quartz's rowback on their um, their paywall? Uh, honestly, no. Um, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, yeah, I I think I you know I just sort of alluded to to the Quartz's of the world. You know, I I don't think the model that they had in place was ideal for the type of content that they were producing if if we're completely honest um you know it wasn't necessarily sort of differentiated or high value enough i think to to warrant sort of a, a subscription to uh, you know sort of the the site at large so i think the adjustment they made just coming back to the previous point makes a ton of sense where you know they're opening up the majority of their content to kind of grow their brand grow their traffic but then it sounds like the idea is to sort of reserve highly specific newsletters for portions of their audience. And again, I wouldn't be surprised if they and publishers like Court start to roll out multiple subscription products that are targeting sort of different segments of their audience. Yeah. Um, there have been a number of warnings this week. I know Brian Morris is one of them with his boom time <laughs> newsletter. That we've got, yeah. uh, we've basically got a couple, of really tough couple of years ahead for publishers. There's going to be belt tightening all round. Does this reflect what you're seeing with who you're working with, or do you think there are some actually getting on just fine? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for the moment, everybody seems to be getting on mostly fine. But I think you know, there's inevitably a nervousness that sort of starts to creep into the market, especially in media when, you know, all the headlines are, are coming out <laughs> of the publications <laughs> that people are trying to monetize, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I think how it always is in media, there's nervousness in the market. People start cutting budgets and hoarding cash. And I think we're definitely starting to catch wind of budgets being frozen and ads de ad deals starting to fall through here and there. But, Again, I think what's interesting about these periods is they're difficult for everyone, but I believe and hope that they really end up sort of advantaging publishers with genuine value propositions, you know, real audiences and uh, sort of legitimate reasons for existing. Um, you know, I think those with more commoditized content and audiences are going to potentially have a tougher time if things do slow down significantly. But those that have kind of put in the foundation and the legwork to uh, you know, create really sort of differentiated products and real connections with their audiences and ultimately offering things that people can't get somewhere else, then I think, you know, I would hope that they would emerge sort of from any downturn in a, in a stronger position. I mean, isn't that just the story of the last decade? I feel, I feel like the last, the last decade's been like a big downturn. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, this is also not to sort of harp on about subscriptions, but it's it's where I think subscriptions are interesting just from a pure diversification standpoint, because you can insulate yourselves to a degree from sort of the ups and downs in the market. So again, you know, during any downturn, advertising budgets are the first to go. Uh, but if ad dollars dry up, then, you know, you have a subscriber base to fall back on. And I think we saw that in 
the early days or the early months of of covid for example mm. because overnight ad dollars went away and publishers you know that we were speaking to were were panicking um but meanwhile at the other end of the spectrum if you had uh, a subscription product and again assuming it was sort of genuinely valuable and people needed it to do their job or uh you know to sort of make sense of the world then they were in a good spot so um yeah, I, I think it just comes back to that diversification piece again. And if you've got all your eggs in one basket, especially if it's the advertising basket, then downturns are, are going to be pretty hairy. So if you had just one piece of advice to give to publishers with subscriptions now, whether this is very generic, um, what would that be? I think it's to sort of be honest with yourself about the value that subscribers are getting from your products and... I would say, especially right now, you know, if necessary, be proactive about adjusting them to reorient firmly around value before subscribers kind of tell you by voting with their feet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talk, again, it's the same with sort of ads versus subscriptions. I think just be realistic about whether or not a subscription model is the right fit for your content and audience, because the reality is not every publisher can support subs model and, and that's okay you know, of advertising and commerce and other revenue streams might be a better fit. Um, but yeah, you know, I think just be honest, maybe avoid some of the, the binary uh, narratives and discussions that happen on social media and just think about, you know, realistically, what's going to be in the best interests of, of your business. And I guess more specifically, what does your content and what does your sort of worldview lend itself to? Maybe that's subscriptions, maybe it's not. But um, yeah, I think maybe just sort of look yourself in the mirror and uh, sort of have a bit of a reality check, especially if things are sort of heading south economy-wise. And then finally, we ask all our guests what the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you. Uh, well, this is probably a bad answer, but I've just finished watching all of the um, uh, sort of We Crashed, The Dropout and uh, Super Pumped, um, which I thought were, were all fascinating and gave sort of a really interesting snapshot into the I guess, the the boom at that time. And, you know, I think it is interesting to sort of draw parallels between media as well. And again, we touched on this earlier, but uh, it's just sort of an interesting case study on what happens if you get too excited and get ahead of, get ahead of your skis. Um, so, yeah, I think people who work in media can probably uh, take away some interesting points from this. So we've talked a lot about it. Uh, today, but the winners of the Publisher Podcast Awards are available for you to see over at publisherpodcastawards.com. Um, you'll also find a page over there about our first ever summit, Publisher Podcast Summit, which we are having, oh, I always get this wrong, October, late yep. September, October, October. Uh, which we're going to have in October. Uh, and there's a little form there, which if you fill it in, you can tell us if you're interested in attending, in speaking, or listen up sponsoring uh, we have sponsor opportunities that are just amazing give me a call um, and also what topics you'd like us to cover as part of that um, and actually if you want to just go straight to that publisherpodcastawards.com slash summit 
And if you're in the mood to support us further, you can go to our Ko-Fi page, which you can get at voices.media slash support. If you can kick us a couple of quid to invest in that summit and our audio quality and basically everything <laughs> that means that we can continue to do this podcast on our own terms, we'd really, really appreciate that. While you're there, you may as well sign up for our newsletter as well. That goes out every day of the week and includes the four most important stories that we found for you, often from Media Gazer. <laughs> but until next week, we'll be back with another fantastic guest. Goodbye.